gather together and lift you up and praise you. But God, we thank you that we can turn to your scripture that you have left us, that we can stop and think about this, of how you were moving in the life of the church of Colossae and how you want to move in the life of the church of Highland Hills. So God, I pray that you would be with us, that when we turn to the scripture, we would see that it applies to our life today, that there's something in here that can equip us today to live more for Jesus Christ and let that be our aim. And it is only in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. For the Lord. I believe that's what this text is pushing us toward. That we can live life in such a way that we can look back on our life and say that we strive, though imperfectly, through the power of God to live our lives in every aspect for the Lord. But to, to understand this section of Scripture as Americans... We need to keep history in mind. We have to remember this was an epistle written millennia ago, and sometimes when we look back at history, we can confuse concepts. We need to compare the Roman context of bond servants some 2,000 years ago with slavery and colonial and American history that came centuries later. I think we must do that or we risk misinterpreting this text. Slavery is a term that, in an American context, carries with it thoughts of hideous bondage and horrendous cruelty. I think this is a fitting description of slavery when we look at our own history in our country that we have in mind when we consider this term as Americans. Slavery for the American forces us to recall in history eras in which evil slave traders brutally kidnapped and maliciously snatched away men, women, and children from the continent of Africa to force them into a life of demeaning hard labor and abuse and deprive them of the dignity that they deserved as image bearers of God. I had a professor at Southern Seminary, Dr. Chitwood, who is now the president of the International Mission Board, One time, Dr. Chitwood told us in class about this experience he had when he was on a trip to visit an historic old trading port, but this wasn't just any port, this was a former slave port. And one puzzling thing about this port is he walked to this door, and you could see it, you could open the door, and and there was nothing. There There would just be a straight drop right into the ocean, right off the cliff, and he wondered what this was. For for you see, this immense opening that came to this door, this drop right into the ocean was there because this door would connect to a ship. It was a loading dock for human beings centuries prior. This door is where the boats would unload image bearers of God that had previously wickedly and atrociously been kidnapped. And in this area, the door would open and they would unload. And Dr. Chipwood, as he was looking at the doors in this area, noticed that one door said infant on the doorway. And he wondered what this meant, and he asked the tour guide. The tour guide explained to him that once the slaves were kidnapped from their homeland and they were brought to this loading dock, if they were together, fathers would be separated from mothers and children from mothers as well. The fathers, the wives separated, the children, the mothers 
Many were already alone because they had been kidnapped from their homeland. And these doors represented the age groups. The slave traders ruthlessly split up families never to see each other again. And as we have seen in the book of Colossians, how beautiful the family is. And when we see these previous verses in 18 through 21, that God created the family. And we see that these slave traders distorted that image and sinfully ripped families apart and forced these Africans into treacherous labor for the rest of their lives. This is the epitome of evil. This is how excessively grotesque sin can become in a fallen world. And when we see such evil in our history, we need context for that to think about what was happening some 2,000 years ago. Because as we, as we glare back in history and, and we look at the 1800s, the 1700s, the 1600s, you have to go further to get to where Paul is in history here. This is some 2,000 years ago. And we have to compare slavery that plagues our history to what Paul is talking about here in this text. Between colonial and eventually of the American slave system, with the Roman system that Paul would have been living in and writing in the midst of. In Rome, this bond servant that Paul speaks of is the Greek word doulos. It was not a system against an entire people group. Rather, it was a system that includes individuals for various reasons. And there were some similarities. In Rome, one could be born a doulos. A person in debt could become a dual loss to pay off their debts. A prisoner of war may be sent to serve as a dual loss. And these are just a few ways that a person in this era, some 2,000 years ago in Rome, could become a dual loss, a bond servant. And a dual loss in Paul's time could actually serve as a business leader. They could accumulate wealth. They could move in social status. And still it is awful that any society would have this compulsed servitude. But Paul had no opportunity to change the government of Rome. But what Paul did have the opportunity to do was spread the message of Jesus and the grace of God. To engage in war with the kingdom of Satan. To lead people to the only one that could set them free. To the only true savior and liberator, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're going to examine how the situation with bond servants actually applies to us today. Yet, before I continue, I want to stress and over-communicate that we must proclaim that what the colonies in the early United States practiced with slavery, when we're looking at these verses, the slave system of our past was cruel, vile, evil, racist, and demonic in origin, distorting the image bearers of God. And historical context matters when interpreting the Bible. The Bible actually stresses that redemption from slavery is a picture of what God wants to do to the people of this world. To redeem them, to set them free. It was true of Israel and it is true of anyone today who accepts the good news of Christ. In Leviticus 26.13 it says this. In Leviticus 26, 13, God speaking to his people said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. 
I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with, with heads held high. When God is speaking to Israel and he wants them to know who he is and who they are, he says he is their liberator and he has come to set them free from being slaves in Egypt. In 1 Timothy 1, we see this. In 1 Timothy 1, 9, this is the King James Version and I think it captures the, the concept very well. In 1 Timothy 1, 9, it says this, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, men stealers, kidnappers. The Greek word is androp odistes. And these people, these kidnappers, these men stealers are condemned in God's word. And any system that directly connects to them is worthy of the same condemnation. Likewise, when we consider history, I do feel it's impossible to follow Christ's teachings if you kidnap and separate families. What did Jesus say in Luke 6.31? In Luke 6.31, it was Jesus himself who said, Do to others as you would have them do to you. Anyone, in any time in history who claims that they could participate in a system that kidnapped people from their families, that separated them, that forced them abusively into compulsory labor, and then claim they were merely doing to others as they would have them do unto themselves, is a liar. You cannot keep Christ's golden rule if you kidnap and sell human beings. So yes, when we examine our own history plagued with the satanic practice of slavery, we need to keep the context in mind when comparing it to Paul's world some 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. Because I think this passage initially offered to bond servants has application for us today if we do not confuse it with other settings in history. That's why I believe the first application we see in our text today is this. Pursue your goals in life ultimately for Jesus. For what do we see in verse 22? What does Paul say? Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. In this life that God has blessed us with, if we're going to live in faith, if we're going to follow Christ, it means that, yes, we must also follow leadership in life. And why should we do this? Is it because our leaders deserve it? Is it because Paul wants us to work hard in life? Well, those are worthy goals, but I think that there's something more grand in view here for what Paul has in mind. What did Paul say in verse 23 again? Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 
do you see the implication of what Paul is saying here and how beautiful it is for our lives? Paul is saying that he's going to tear down this barrier that we put up between work and church from the secular and the spiritual. He has exposed that God accepts your work, all work, as an offering to himself. No matter what you do as the believer, you have an invitation for everything you do in life to be for the Lord. Everything can be done for the Lord. Everything, every breath, every moment, every energy exerted can be an act of worship in your life. You see, if we're not careful, we can think that the God stuff, the spiritual stuff is done inside these walls. When we're working at church in some way, then then that's the service for God and the other stuff is the stuff we have to do in life. And that's a false dichotomy and that's incorrect. It's an incorrect notion that we only serve God when we're in a church setting. Paul sees it much differently. Paul is saying when you are at school and when you are at work, Jesus accepts your work as if it was to him. When the mechanic pours himself or herself into a job to make sure that the customers have their car to meet their day-to-day needs, and this is done so that they can love them, Jesus accepts it as if it was for the Lord. When a believing dentist works hard to help his patients, when a lawyer strives for justice, for the glory of God, when the Christian janitor strives to perform and clean a facility well, when the entrepreneur follows Jesus for the best benefit of his or her customers and works with sincere diligence, when students work hard at school, Jesus says he's going to accept it as if you were doing it for him. You are glorifying Jesus. You are worshiping and serving Christ regardless of the job, regardless of how much it pays, regardless of whatever society deems to be its significance. And picture that. God himself, consistently without fail, over and over again, watching you and counting your labor as to himself. Whatever career... Whatever training, whatever education, when you work hard, God says you did it for the Lord. And that should encourage us. That should excite us. That should prompt us to always work hard because in the end, our service in everything is to he who died on the cross for us. Yet I wonder... Does this appeal to us today? Do we as American Christians, do we want the attention of God, of He who is most significant, or do we settle for the mere attention of men? Verse 22, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Think about this. When you work hard, do you usually do it to please God or to gain the attention of men? 
Perhaps you're at work and you're kind of zoning out. You kind of start playing on the internet. But then the boss walks by and you're immediately on task. Look at me. I'm a great worker today. Do you want the attention of your boss? Do you want them to see you as a good worker? Or do you see that your job is an offering to Jesus? That when you work with all your might to excel at your job, Jesus says you're worshiping him. Students, when when you're at school and that teacher is prepared a lesson, do you spend a good chunk of that class trying to pull out your phone to talk to a friend? Or are you giving your attention to learn well? Because Jesus says when you're in that class setting and you're being a good student, it is an act of worship to him. This is a beautiful invitation to know that everything you do in life matters, that you do have an audience, and it's the most grand audience you could have. It's the king of the universe who's willing to accept your work as unto himself. But do you know what those attitudes mean when we just want the attention of people? It means we may not trust God's word. We may be tempted to believe that God's eyes are not upon us. Verse 23 again, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. God's word is shouting. God's eyes are always upon you, and he does not want to harm you. God has wonderful, majestic intentions toward you. He wants to give you purpose. He wants to give you an opportunity to please him, to find joy in a relationship with him. But the question is, do you really believe his attention is on you? Because we severely crave attention in our culture. One of our biggest fears in life is that we will not be noticed that we will be forgotten. So we strive for the most prestigious positions. We struggle with popularity. We want to be important. We want the attention of men. We spend hours searching for that best photo we can find for the social network of our choice, Facebook and, and the like. We strive to build resumes that brag about our significance. We do everything we can to get that guy or that girl to notice us. We buy expensive cars to brag about our salaries when they're really probably testimonies about our debt. We find our significance in the opinions of people. Despite our foolish pursuit of attention in the eyes of men, look at this beautiful promise in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. God is saying to us this morning, don't worry. You are not forgotten. You are noticed. You are loved. Because the king of the universe says your life matters. He who is most significant in all of existence looks at you and says you are significant because you bear his image. God is saying to us all, this beautiful creator is saying to us, I will be your audience. You can have God's attention. I will notice you. I will love you. Simply stop wanting the attention of people. Stop being a people pleaser and seek the attention of Christ. 
God wants to give you a reward. He wants you to know the ultimate treasure. He wants to give you Jesus. God's reward is himself. And then eternity and his paradise and an eternal relationship that starts in this life. Where no matter what you do, if you do it for his glory, it is an act of worship. Think about that. God loves you so much that every single thing you do can become an act of worship. What dreams do you have in life? What would you like to accomplish? Dream the biggest dream. And then know this, the joy that you think of when you dream the biggest dream, it is eclipsed by what God wants to give you. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 2.9. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, the Bible says, However as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. God wants to give you a future and a hope. But it's not based on the things of this world, the accolades of this world, the power and prestige of this world. No, It's based on him giving you the greatest thing he could possibly give you. Everything he is for you in Jesus Christ. And if we believe this is true, and we find ourselves as leaders in life, I think we must make this application as well. Leaders must lead as servants of Christ. Look with me again in verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrongdoing he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In this culture that Paul was writing to, many leaders of bondservants may be tempted to treat them ruthlessly. To think that stirring up fear was the best way to lead. And Paul is telling the Christian leaders acting ruthlessly, they must not do this. They must repent. And what is the reason Paul gives? Does he think it's just a a leadership guideline? No, it's, it's far deeper than that. For Paul points out that nobody is the ultimate leader except Jesus Christ. Anyone who finds himself being a Christian finds themselves in submission to Jesus Christ. And we are all servants of Christ. And since we are all servants of Jesus, we must not be cruel and brutal in leadership. We must recognize that we will answer to Christ for how we have led. Perhaps some of you are currently bosses. Some of you may be in leadership. Maybe you're a boss at your work. Perhaps you're a leader at school in a club or a sport or maybe you're a Sunday school teacher or a volunteer leader whatever way you may serve as a leader in your life and I ask you how do you treat those under you do you treat them with respect because this respect does it cause you to compliment them to reward them when they do well to have compassion for them to care for them not just as someone that's there to achieve your goal but as a person made in the image of God that you are called to love Do you show compassion and patience when they cannot perform to the degree that you want them to at that moment? How do you lead? For how you lead declares something about your faith. 
You see, it's easy for a leader, a boss, to bully those under themselves. That's easy to do. If a leader does not really believe that they will answer to Christ one day, then it's easy to do. But if you truly have faith that there is an ultimate leader, and if you know Jesus, then you should be a boss who fears being a leader that never showed grace when you have been given infinite grace in Christ. The leader that realizes that he or she is in fact only a boss second and a servant of Jesus Christ first, this leader is so appreciative for Christ's love that they want to show love to others. You see, Jesus Christ will not show partiality to anyone. Verse 25 again, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrongdoing he has done, and there is no partiality. If you are a leader now, the best way we could describe that in the grand scheme of things, of what everyone is doing, of what God is doing in Christ, and what he's calling everyone to do, the best way we can describe that if you are a leader now is this, big deal. You see, we show partiality in life. Jesus Christ does not. In America, we may be found guilty doing the opposite of this sometimes. We may choose to only associate with the prestigious, the physically beautiful people of this world. We may only eat lunch with the popular. We may only befriend top-notch people, and we're constantly thinking, how can they be used by us to advance our career? And when we do this, we are acting foolishly. It's not to say that we shouldn't respect leadership. We absolutely should. What it is to say is that the leaders should be humble, realizing that they are first and foremost, if they've been right, made right with God, servants of Jesus Christ. Jesus could not care less about your popularity, your physical beauty, your title, or your leadership. What he cares about is, do you love him? And does your belief in him change the way you interact with others? Jesus does not show partiality. He does not have favorites. He does not put these rankings on people that we put. Rather, he looks at us as sinners who need a savior and who wants us to fall in love with him and to see that pour out in our lives in the way that we love each other. Jesus cares about followers and leaders. He cares about setting them both free. Galatians 5, 1 says it like this. In Galatians 5, verse 1, it says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You see, the gospel message is one of freedom. When we were in bondage to sin, the liberator came to us. He who had in mind our true freedom came to this world and died bearing our sin that we might gain his freedom. He took on our guilt that we may gain his innocence. Liberty, the chance to know and love God for eternity. Freedom. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And regardless of how the people of this world treat you, that is the declaration. You 
are more loved, more treasured, more valued than you could ever know. And there is something offered to you that is only found in the Son of God. Freedom. May we all be able to testify that Christ has set us free, free to live not for this world or the labels placed on us by this world, but free to live in such a way that no matter what we do, we can count it as an act of worship for the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that everything you call us to do in this life, every breath that you give us as a gift, every ounce of energy we exert by your grace and your power, it's a gift. We can return it back to you as an act of worship. That we're constantly walking in this relationship with you. That yes, when we come here in church and we sing your praises and we examine your word, it's, it's for you. And when we're at our jobs and we do them well to love others, it's for you. And when we're sitting in school and we're studying hard, it's for you, God. That you are our audience. That we have the greatest audience we could possibly have. The creator of the cosmos. And God, I pray that this truth goes so deep in our hearts this morning that we will experience the joy every day of walking for Christ, of living for Jesus, of doing everything for you, for you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let us stand. We will close singing the praises of the King. You know, the Bible says that all of us are invited to this path where everything we do can be for the Lord. But there is a starting point to that in life. The Bible says that when you admit you are a sinner and you believe that Jesus died and rose again and you call upon him to be your Lord and Savior, you start that relationship where then from that point on for eternity, everything is for the Lord. If you've never done that, I pray today would be the day of salvation. If you have any other need, as we sing the praises of the King, you come at this time. Let us sing the praises of Christ.